podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Field Index Extra Transfer Rumor Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Wells, and joining me as always is my trusty sidekick, uh, Tadiwa. Tadiwa, how are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks, Justin. And how was the honeymoon? It was great. Um, I'm a big fan of the country of Portugal. Uh, nice place. Would highly recommend anybody going to visit it. Um, Tadiwa, I'm also shocked you didn't get annoyed at me calling you my trusty sidekick. I just wanted to introduce someone in my life as my trusty sidekick. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm more than willing to be your Robin, your Batman in that case. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think we're probably a different superhero tandem, one with far less uh, utility. But uh, let's, let's, let's get into talking about uh, some, some transfer rumors and introducing our guest. Uh, joining us from down under, actually, the rare time where we've gotten a podcast of someone in the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. It's Alex Barillaro. How, Alex, how are you? I'm very well, Justin. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I'm- I was a bit surprised that Dilma didn't take offense to the sidekick joke there. I'm not sure you've got much claim to that, Justin, but no, that's okay. We'll go with it for now. I'll yeah. be the joker to your Batman and Robin, don't worry. All right, would you, so here's, here's a good one to open us up on then, if we're, if we're going to talk about, you know, this Batman and Robin reference. Better, uh-huh. better, uh, who's the better joker? Heath Ledger or Jack Nicholson? Uh, it's Heath Ledger for me. Yeah, he's, yeah his performance is iconic. Also, because the, the, a lot of the new comic books are much more Heath Ledger than Jack Nicholson. So if you're a nerd like me and you, you've been a young nerd like me and you've been reading comic books for the last four or five years, you're much more associated with the Heath Ledger style. But no, that's a discussion for the AI comic pub, which I've yet to be invited on. Uh, so that's just me tra- uh, transgressing. But no, yeah, Heath Ledger for me. Yeah, Tadiwa, you're also in the Heath Ledger camp? Yeah, I definitely have to be Heath Ledger, especially after that performance. I thought one one of the best uh, Batman movies I've seen. Yeah, I, I think I'm. I think I might be more Jack, and I think it's just because I, I I think I'm iconizing it to like my childhood because I think that that first one came that one came out I think when I was about nine years old, and uh, the, the soundtrack that's all Prince and the comic and and like. The over cartoonization of the hero, where he's just evil solely for the sake of being evil, that's kind of a. Uh, I find that kind of fun. But Heath Ledger was amazing in uh in the in the uh the Dark Knight. So, I I uh it's a, it's a tough call. I like them both a lot. Indeed, and he's he's on as well. You can't go wrong with that. Ah, that's true. That's true. But uh, let's let's uh let's get into the you know discussing what we all want to discuss. The transfer window. Um. Now, it's, you know, because that's the point of this podcast to begin with. But it seems as if Liverpool uh, debatably could be done with their window. I guess the question is, does right now, would that leave you satisfied? Or do you still think that we're an attacking midfielder short? But I guess the other thing that's going to come up, and it's, it's, you know, we've started to get the jibes from rival fan bases. You know, you can also use Klopp's words when United signing Pogba saying, well, we don't want to pay those fees. We want to win another way. 
ultimately, the thing that's really starting to come into full view now is FSG and Michael Edwards' transfer policy and how, and how the club is applying it. And you know, the fact that they are willing to spend money, I guess the thing that we really want to get and get into is a holistic conversation around that. So I guess to do a, the, I think first you're probably best to speak to this strat, the, the strategy behind it, both the commercial and the squ- and how they're building the squad. What do you, how do you assess what you, what seems to be their, their plan? Yeah, it, it seems like it's something that has evolved um, the longer they've been at, at Liverpool. And I think you could see at the beginning, we have to, uh, take into consideration that they're not really football people. You know, they, they've, they've dabbled in NASCAR and those type of things, but specifically football or soccer for the Americans, um, it, it's quite a foreign sport for them. So when they came in, they put a lot of trust into the likes of Damien Camoli to sort of lead the way. And then they sort of just learned on the job. Um, and you could see the strategy they brought in at the beginning was more focused on trying to get as many you know, potential stars into the team. Um, it was a lot of raw talent that needed to be nurtured. And we, we've seen that develop as we, you know, as we've gone on to maybe more emerging talents opposed to just raw talents. And now it seems it's culminating in trying to get now those final pieces into hopefully players that are Either if you, you know, um, we can't really say Salah and the likes were world class when we got them, but certainly players who are on the cusp of breaking into that conversation of, am, am I one of the best players in my position? So it seems like from the transfer policy um, stages, they've gone through their different phases and it seems like it's culminating in hopefully this season being something that they're going to be proud of. In terms of commercially, we can see the way that the club has transformed. I mean, when they took over the club, it was, you know, days, if not hours from administration. And they, they also spoke to the surprise of how little we were utilizing the brand that is Liverpool in order to help us, you know, get more revenues. And it is a worldwide brand, one of the most recognized football brands. So you can see how all of that has helped us to then be able to be a stronger force in the transfer market. And it's tied in with, you know, as the more we get bigger in the commercial side, the bigger ambitions and targets we are going in the transfer policy. So it seems like they're quite interlinked. I don't know if you feel the same, Justin. I, I think they are. And I guess the question really kind of that comes from it is them being interlinked and seeing how the brand has grown and the spending power has grown. And I guess, Alex, I'm going to go to, I'm going to kind of level this question to you. Is this transfer window starting to show the culmination of, you know, the trying to get the house in order off the, off the pitch so that way that you can just start throwing everything you can towards really drastically improving the on pitch product? Do you think that we're starting to get to a culmination point where we will now more routinely be able to use our position and power to, bring in consistently better and those nearing world-class players like a Keda or, you know, a Fabinho. Yeah, I think so. But I also think that's been um, encouraged by infrastructure we've put in place from day dot. And whether or not certain figures may have tried to undermine that that infrastructure based on their own egos, if you look at Rogers, based on perhaps not being quite capable for the job they were um, appointed to, in the likes of Kamali, as Tadewa mentioned. Um, I think they they first decided that 
FSG this is, decided that they needed to, to hire the right people to do their jobs, in which case you get the footballing side right. And because they're more, I don't want to say they're, they're more proficient at the economy side because footballing is hiring the right people. That is, that's how football works. But in terms of running a business, FSG are much more kind of, that's more, the, more their ball game. Um, they were able to, to kind of oversee the Anfield expansion and the settling of the debt and the managing the transfer market on their side of things because they had the right football people installed. Uh, and I think Brendan was probably their, their one gamble that didn't pay off because we've seen previously Liverpool appoint managers from kind of lower tiers overseas and a lot of the time they have to build up to the profile of what Liverpool want. Jurgen Klopp was the exact profile of what we wanted to be. Brendan Rodgers was the profile of to use a player he brought through, Raheem Sterling, where you pick him up from a lower league level, he's shown enough promise and enough talent, and you hope that you provide him the right environment to, to, to flourish and to be nurtured. Brendan Rodgers was that in the managerial sense, and he didn't work out. Jurgen Klopp was essentially us picking Allison from Roma. He's extremely, extremely talented at what he does. He is extremely proficient at in a certain at a certain level in a certain set of circumstances and Jurgen Klopp was exactly who Liverpool needed to make that step to the next level to become what FSG want a football club to be which is not just self-sufficient not just globally recognisable but also able to compete without being stupid without having injections of cash from, from Qatar and from uh these massive conglomerates and things like that. But even if you look at Manchester City, Manchester City are taking a taking a page out of the more sensible clubs' books, and I'm including Liverpool in that, in that they are trying to stop their reliance on the Arab money and become self-sufficient, which is why they wouldn't offer Jorginho the ridiculous wages that Chelsea ended up offering him. That's why they are spending $60 million on Riyad Mahrez, but they're, that's their, their spending clout, they're spending capabilities, they're trying to cap wages and trying to, to be self-sufficient, trying to, to create themselves kind of this aura of an actual big club rather than a kind of billionaire's plaything, or in this case, a country's plaything. Um, so Klopp was perfect for the way FSG wanted to operate, but he's also the perfect hiring for another club that wants to say, we want to do it like they do. We want to do it like they do. And it goes to show with Dortmund the way they've kind of uh, spiraled downwards since Klopp's left. Even the back room, the transfers, the kind of youth set up there is is not what it once was. And Liverpool are reaping the benefits of having the right people installed. And credit to Klopp and Edwards for that. So I guess the question that I'm going to ask both of you is going, and it's going to go back to what I was just intimating at when I was doing the intro to this section. Uh, you have a few years ago Klopp effectively poking at United for spending as much as they did on Pogba. And now you have, uh, you know, rival clubs sitting there saying, well, you spent $75 million on a on a center back. You bought the world's most expensive keeper. It, do you guys, uh, you know, take any of the, the banterous uh, claims of other, of other sides to have, you know, do they mean anything? Is there any meaning to Klopp saying that and other supporters then getting angry about it? Or is it basically just that managers in the Premier League kind of know that they can 
troll other fan bases with uh, with very very little uh, possibility of a repercussion. Because um, I, I think it's you know definitely the latter, where he just says manager speak, doesn't even believe what he's saying to the media half the time, but gives them a good soundbite. Uh, you know, Alex, I want to see how you weigh in on that. Well, I think I think it's definitely a part of the soundbite thing, but I think Klopp's criticism was more, which is again shown to be rather truthful, that United will spend willy-nilly to fix whatever they want and then not install everything else and not coach them right and not train them right and not give them enough time. The Pogba thing, I think he was reacting to what he grew up with. And I generally think Jurgen Klopp changed. The Premier League has changed him because 89 million at the time for Pogba, no matter Neymar and everything, was a sound investment because you're buying a brand, but you're also buying, at the time, the best midfielder, best young midfielder in the world who will be in your team for, if United get their way, five, five, six years. Uh, and that would pay, pay off 89 million over the course of 10 million a season. Oh, no, not 10 million a season, maybe 20 million a season if you keep him for four or five years. And then you hopefully sell him for enough money to kind of recoup that. It wasn't a disastrous or even that expensive a transfer, even at the time. No one could have foreseen the Neymar explosion. However, Klopp, changed. I think he changed. I also think yeah, you're right, Justin, the soundbite and the trolling is definitely a part of kind of these charismatic managers like Jurgen Klopp. Mourinho does it all the time and that's the one one of the things I admire him for is his ability to rile up opposition fans. Just takes it a bit too far. But I think what Klopp was more pointing at which you can see in, in kind of the figures is that United, we'll put it this way, United since 2000, the 2010-11 season have spent $627 million net Liverpool spent 151 million net, and since then United have won titles, and Liverpool haven't. And yet, in the last three years, when Klopp has been able to spend big, when the transfer fees have gone from 20 million flogged on Charlie Adams to 66 million on Allison, and then wise investments like paying 13 and a half million for Shakiri, then Liverpool have suddenly, well, let's say trumped. Um, Manchester United, but they've certainly gotten to their level, and that's because Klopp is using the money that he's got at his disposal, and I don't think that he should be criticised for doing what everyone else wants to do. That seems almightily hypocritical for me, but no, it's just probably the way that humans are in the Premier League, is where you level levelling criticism at doing anybody for anything is almost entirely always hypocritical. Yeah, and to you, uh, I think Alex has made a lot of good points there. Um, you on the same page? Um, yeah, I have to agree to an extent with uh, with Alex in that I do think it's he factors in both things of trying to get those sound bites because I I don't think Klopp even remembers saying that to be honest, especially with the way he responded after journalists sort of reminded him of that quote, but also the fact that you know it's 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 a new way of doing football. Um, I think it's a way that Klopp is not used to, especially in the Bundesliga. Not even just, if you look at his whole managerial career, I don't think he's been at a club that's been able to even spend 66 million on an Allison. So I think entering that new environment, that also plays a factor as well. Oh, we can also do this. Um, I think it's, it's changed the way he's seen it. And it's also, I think maybe the Neymar deal, the Neymar, the Mbappe deals, they may have played a factor in this as well. So you could add Coutinho going for 140 as well, where 
prices for football players now, I think it's reached, you know, peak levels. It, it may fluctuate, you know, we'll, we'll see as the transfer windows go on. I don't know if it can stay at this high level. Then again, we always say this and then it always increases. But I do think the fact that, you know, players are going for what to, over a hundred million easily, it does now increase the prices of, let's say, the best or one of the best goalkeepers in the world because that's the level you're going to have to pay. And also that's the market. That's what everyone is paying. So you kind of either pay market value or you're going to be left out. So um, I think Klopp is getting to that stage where I, I don't want to be left out anymore. But you made you made a good point in terms of he hasn't been able to do that in the past. But even the way that other clubs are doing now, to try and emulate that style that Dortmund successfully did. They, I mean, they only paid, what, six million for Hommel's Goss, Mario Gosser was a, um, academy kid. They paid 12 million for Royce and that was seen as exorbitant at the time because he, he had an extra, exceptional season at Gladbach, but it wasn't, it just wasn't something that Dortmund did. Now, Dortmund are flogging 30 million. Their most expensive signing is Andre Schurler, who's about to go to Crystal Palace or Fulham. We don't know which one yet. For, Maybe 20 million euros. They, they flogged him for, they got him 35 million euros. That was after, was that after Klopp left? Or that might have been his last season? No, I'm fairly certain that was after. It was after, it was after that was, that was a Thomas yeah. Tuchel signing. Yeah, that was, that was Tuchel and that was a pretty bad regime. The, remember when we were talking about Klopp kind of in his infancy in Liverpool, we were saying people were always quick to mention, oh wait, Mikel Zork. Oh, you got, you got to remember Mikel Zork. Klopp can't be in charge of transfers here and we can't rely on that because, because Mikel Zork. And look at Castro's gone. Uh, Pulisic is an academy kid. He's their most important player. Sebastian Roda, weird signing. Socrates is going back to Arsenal. These are all, these are all signings that were supposedly strong Dortmund-esque signings, core signings. Roda came from Bayern. Socrates was kind of a relatively young centre back. Schurler was, okay, a very poor bit of scouting because he's terrible. Yarmolenko is awful. And he probably will be awful for West Ham. And he was their marquee signing last season. It's very, very strange to see how projects can disappear from, or, or maybe just it's simple, simply just not being on the right track. But then the idea that Klopp can't succeed without Zork, when by by all accounts he's got a better Zork in Michael Edwards. So it's, I'm not sure Klopp should come into criticism for something that he never did at Dortmund. Which was spent big, but now he's come to Liverpool and and kind of find the found the right way of doing. Because if if he was doing the same thing as United, those numbers wouldn't be as insane as they as they are at United. Like spending six hundred million net, it's, it's it's incredible. But they can do that; they can get away with it. Well, I think it's also we're probably we're probably flexing to the max of our financial muscle right now. Right, which is definitely helped by the outlook of having a second straight season of Champions League football, and Klopp as the manager being able to to convince people like Naby Keita to come to Liverpool over going to Barca, right? Because that's that's a piece of information that's come out. The fact is, it's the perfect storm for us to exercise the 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 extent of our financial might, which is probably roughly where we are, right? These I don't think that we're ever a club that's going to go out and spend. 120 million on a player. But 75, no, we, but 75 we can do. Also, the wages. We can't, we can't afford yeah. to pay Alexis Sanchez 300k a week, which is objectively moronic. 
because Sanchez is 29 and he, that's not the position United needed to fix. But we can afford to pay our highest, our best earning, or our best kind of performing players 180k a week, which is what they need for this point in their career because they're all young. So if you factor in the fact that um, FSG's kind of average age of signing has always been below 26, that was on the on the tremendous AI committee pod that um, Gag, Mo, David, and Dan Kennett did a while back. Mo made the point: we we don't sign anyone over 26. So when you've got a good strategy and you've hired the right people then you don't have to... It's like you said, Justin, We, when you've got the person who can convince an abicator, when you've got the money needed to spend $66 million rather than $96 million or $89 million on Pogba, then you've got the right setup, don't you? You've got the perfect set of circumstances for the club, and that's the club FSG want to run. Yeah. No, and I think that basically this is the plan probably coming together. Now, to do... You know, I mentioned briefly the Champions League, but... How, how, how strong right now between the concept of the Champions League, you know, Klopp's system and being implemented, and then looking at the players that he's bringing in, how much of a factor right now do you think that is towards us actually being able to complete these deals and becoming first, you know, a, a club that is first choice for some players who, you know, are, are going to be mentioned in the, uh, the European elite as far as, uh, you know, the, the actual squad? Yeah, I think that that was a vital thing for us um, going into this season was getting Champions League again. Um, maybe regardless of making it to the final, the the be all and end all for most players, especially the players we're now trying to to target, is are you guys a Champions League team? And if you're not, you know, it's it's no longer it's no longer a football market where you're looking at, let's say just four traditional English teams that you can go to. There's potentially, you know, six Champions League caliber English teams you can go to. And the ones slightly below that, they also have some financial muscle too. So you have to be, you have to be offering, you know, something that the others can't offer. With the likes of we've seen, as we mentioned, Man United, Chelsea City, if those teams were to miss out on a Champions League this season, in the past, they've had the financial clout or the financial, you know, means to say, look, we don't have Champions League this season, but we'll pay you extra. You know, we'll make up for it in other means. We'll give you, you know, those $200,000 deals and stuff like that. As Liverpool, we couldn't necessarily do that. So us not being in the Champions League and then not being a team that was regularly winning trophies and on top of it, we're not going to be able to give you the wages these other guys are giving you. It was very difficult for us to then attract these players. But now if we've come to a position where, you know, the manager, obviously, as we've mentioned, he's got the, you know, he's, he's got that it factor of being able to motivate players to, to want to come to Liverpool. I'm pretty sure it's just a matter of as soon as Klopp gets them on the phone, we sort of can see, you know, a change in the way these players come out of the conversation having gone into it. And then you take into account the style, I suppose, of, of Klopp's football. It's a brand of football that's very exciting to to watch. I'm sure it's very exciting to play in. And that also plays a factor in our financials. If you look at, you know, the TV money that has come, in, come into the Premier League, Liverpool have been top, if not, you know, the top two over the last three seasons with Klopp in it. We've always earned the most money from that TV deal because we're such an exciting team to watch. So we, you know, you factor that in with the Champions League money as well as 
just the, the there seems to be a vibe or an aura about Liverpool and the resurgence that's coming with it. And it's quite an exciting place to be. And I think all of that, it's just creating this, you know, perfect cycle, so to speak, uh, which is quite interesting and exciting as a fan. Yeah, and it's interesting that you speak of this perfect cycle too, because you can also take it and look really at our at our um, our opposition, and you know, as far as you know, Spurs not being able to spend a ton because of their this of their stadium, and they probably have a financial issue that's not going to allow them to you know, keep every single player they have due to the uh, the kinds of contracts they're going to require, and the fact that they always have to keep Harry Kane happy. Um, I will I will not voice my opinion on Harry Kane on this podcast. But uh, but we could suffice it to say it's not positive. Um, but Arsenal, you know, they're they're beaten back, and they can only sign the kinds of players right now that they can get for uh, under a new manager who's not Arsene Wenger with the Europa League, which is going to be tough on them. Chelsea, similar situation. Sorry, is you know he's a, he's a manager with a lot of. Uh, I think he is a manager who gets a lot of respect, but it's going to take time to get that. Chelsea side playing how he wants to play, considering Conte's style is very different. And they're also a, a bit of a mess financially, too, and there are questions around whether or not they're going to be able to keep you know their best three players in uh, Conte, who PSG are supposedly in for, and Hazard and Courtois, who are both connected to Real Madrid. Uh, so as far as like the blips in the market, there's three, op- three opposing teams right there that aren't probably going to you know that they're that we're we're able to take advantage of their position, and then you look at United, just having Mourinho there and and their wage bill, I, it doesn't seem like a lot of attacking players or really flair players want to go there because of the way that they play. So it might be lining up just through the through our and through our transfer policy and what we have to you know time perfectly for us to make actually a run at the league and in Europe concurrently. I mean, I don't know how far away you guys think we are from contending for the league but what else do you realistically think we need um to deal with like what what do you you think we need to compete for the league Um, i think yeah as you've said we we've definitely i think stepped above maybe an arsenal and the spurs uh in the sense of if you look at maybe you know we've spoken about transfer policy and systems arsenal also did the whole sign the youngsters sell them for a profit i think spurs have done the whole sign the youngsters not necessarily sell them for a profit. They've they've gone with the strategy of maybe tying those guys down to new deals. But neither of those teams have been able to then take the next step, which I think we've been able to do of, okay, you've signed the youngsters. You know, signing youngsters is hit and miss. Some of them really come come good. Some of them, you know, unfortunately, they don't end up doing so well. But once you've gotten to a stage where all your players are reaching a certain age, I mean, if you look at the age of our front three, they're all entering their peak years. So you want players in and around them that are also maybe entering their peak years or in their peak so that they can help them, you know, um, help facilitate them a bit better and try and go for that title. In terms of what we still need, um, you know, we've mentioned that we've, we've shown some financial muscle this transfer window, but we have to remember that we don't have that open checkbook. So there are players, maybe you could say a, a right center back to partner Virgil van Dyke would be, you know, could, you know, an improvement on Lovren and Matip. That could be, that, that could actually take us to another level. But I just don't see that happening in this window from a financial perspective. And then obviously the backup to Bobby Firmino, he's a 
special type of striker in that he doesn't necessarily fulfill the traditional roles of a striker or of the, the person leading the line. But having someone that can deputize for him, you know, the strikers we currently have, all of them play different to the way he does. So ideally, you would have wanted someone that plays a little closer to how Bobby plays, you know, um, but I, I don't see us getting a striker in as well. Um, so th- that plays a factor. And then obviously the, the position we seem to have been going for, for, you know, this whole summer pretty much in signing an attacking midfielder, signing that player that replaces basically what Philip Coutinho was adding to the team in the creativity and, and, you know, that final quality in the final third that, you know, having the ability to play that final pass or just to unlock a defense. We've seen, you know, the saga that's dragged on with Nabil Fakir over this whole transfer window, whether he comes in or not, you know, it's, you could toss a coin at the, at this point in time. But I think if I could pick a single position, I would probably pick that attacking midfield position just to have that extra bit of quality to unlock defenses, especially considering Oxlade Chamberlain is out for the season and Adam Lalonde is not really, you know, the most uh, reliable person, unfortunately. Um, but I do think maybe um, Alex, that's probably Alex's forte in terms of attacking midfielders and who we could be looking to get there. Yeah, and I mean, Alex, same question to you. What do you think is needed in the rest of this transfer window to compete? I think um, attacking midfielders is an interesting kind of conundrum slash dilemma because in Nabil Fakir, you had an attacking midfielder who could play essentially the pressing game that we want, the driving kind of counter-attacking game that we want, and then also be able to deputize out wide relatively effectively. Um, and Nabil Fakir is one of my favorite players in world football. I cover, or I, I stick to... Um, the league earn and, and the Bundesliga kind of religiously are the two leagues that I most cover. And then City are kind of just below that. And I don't watch much La Liga. Uh, and in all of the leagues that I watched last year and the year before and, and since I've kind of had a major interest, major vested interest in football, Nabil Fakir is one of those players that you just look at and go, oh, you look so good in red. You would look cr- incredible in red. Um, and, it, and I was fighting for the signing, fighting for the fact that it was still on and desperate to, to kind of retain hope for so long and then a couple of days ago I had uh, someone tell me, one of my friends who's living in France tell me yeah, it doesn't look like Liverpool were able to get the insurance right they won't be returning or so so this this French source said then yesterday the guy came back and said hey, on, maybe there is something maybe there's not. So in terms of what to do, I just said the flip of coin, literally that seems to be what the the sign he's hinging on right now is whether or not his knees worth insuring or worth not worth insuring. Um, the the one thing that I can say is that if the signing doesn't come off, there won't be any resentment, and there shouldn't be any kind of ill feeling towards Liverpool for not signing someone who had a botched ACL operation and whose clubs treated him. Just all well, no, this club hasn't treated him like crap because our wife treats all of his players like sons. Um, <laughs> but whoever allowed that medical procedure, uh, in which they basically bypassed three weeks of recovery with a cheat sheet for ACL injuries, from what I can tell, I'm no, no medical expert, but from everything I've been told, it was a bit of a uh, sleazy slash 
stingy slash kind of let's get him back early because we need him move. And to be fair, it worked. Leon are in the Champions League. And if they do keep him, they will be playing some tremendous football next season. They've made some good signings. Uh, but the prospect of seeing Nabil Fakir in red just makes me hold on to any last hope I possibly can. That being said, the idea that Fakir is the only one for Liverpool is starting to really grate on me and become kind of this fallacy because Felipe Coutinho, despite not necessarily being a good systemic fit and despite taking too many shots, was excellent for this Liverpool side. Jurgen Klopp brought the best out of him by making him kind of... He, he carved out this little niche individual role, which he hasn't been able to find in Barcelona because Barcelona have been insistent that Coutinho is a left winger despite the fact that... Um, that they insist on playing him kind of as the NES or in midfield. When he did start playing left wing last year or, or kind of in the front three, they started to see results. Klopp didn't just see him as a midfielder. He saw him eventually as a midfielder, given the amount of kind of promise that he showed when put into a midfield three. But Coutinho was a left winger slash left midfielder who would cut inside, kind of cause havoc in the half spaces or whatever pretentious name football hipsters have for, for that these days and ensure that the forwards were always moving and the forwards always had supply. And he contributed goals as well. There's no reason why we can't look to someone like, uh, most recently, Mateo Kovacic, which, okay, may, may well be nonsense coming from Spanish news press, uh, newspapers, but we get linked to him every summer. There's no reason to say we, we wouldn't be looking at him again. Julian Draxler, who I've just written about, would be a phenomenal sign. He, he's already been playing in the midfield three for PSG this season, which is what kind of piqued my interest when I thought, yeah, he would, he would be ideal. He's got Fakir's positional awareness. He doesn't press as much, but he's better. He's more graceful on the ball. Uh, and he's, he's probably got better decision making than Fakir, who, while, at Leon has shown his desire to kind of be the hero a number of times. Um, and despite the fact he's, he's phenomenal at it, he's, he's able to carry the team on his back. Sometimes the team doesn't need carrying. Draxler's decision-making is much more mature and less kind of cavalier. Um, Christian Pulisic is the other one that we've been alluding to in the last 24 hours. And he is the project that we should be going for. He is someone you can mould because he's not just a dribble merchant. Uh, he's not just someone who needs to, to be out wide to use his pace like Usmane Dembele. Uh, he's not someone that needs a specific position and kind of role to fit into a team. You can build a team around him. Dortmund have been doing that for the last two seasons. He didn't have an, an almightily stunning season last season. He did get hampered by the fact that Dortmund went from playing this kind of expansive, ambitious football under Peter Bush to kind of root one more basic, um, sensible football. And hopefully with Favre, they'll get more back towards kind of that counter-attacking system. Lucien Favre, the new coach, more of that counter-attacking system. But just the idea of Klopp turning Pulisic, the second best 19-year-old in world football, the best 19-year-old, obviously just won a World Cup, um, yeah, to turning that potential into whatever Klopp wants is just devastating. And if you think well, we played the 4-2-4 last year against West Ham, Pulisic fits into that. We play the 4-3-3. I'm not sure Pulisic fits into the third midfielder yet, but there's no reason to say after six months and a bit of tweaking that he can't. And most importantly, 
that front three with Christian Pulisic in, who is just an absolute machine when it comes to taking on plays. He's fearless. He's lethal. He's also got the maturity and the character because he has kind of laboured under this, this kind of task of wearing Borussia Dortmund on his back and being the star player, considering they haven't been able to buy many of them. Um, he's just the perfect fit. He's the, he's the kind of Liverpool signing that you would you could see being kind of the next generational star, considering the, the marketability of him as well, the American side of things. Uh, he's just so impressive. He's so, so impressive, and I can't imagine why we wouldn't be after him. Um, but I do think that Price may be a bit of a stickler. I do think this summer probably is the best chance to get him because I can't see Dortmund not finishing kind of top four under Lucien Favre, and then big clubs are going to be sniffing. So that, those would be my three. Um, you can look at Bruno Fernandes, but he's going to be extremely irritating to, to pry out of sporting now that he's um, re-upped his contract. You could look at the likes of um, Uzmane on loan, probably not going to get you anywhere. Isco, probably not going to leave Madrid, if, if you're honest. Uh, all those kind of high-profile players that we would want to be after, given how much how impressive Nabil Fakir looks. Um probably unattainable. The three that I mentioned are the most attainable. Uh, PSG are being investigated for financial fair play again. This is discounting the Neymar and Mbappe deals which won't show up on their records until this coming financial year, this coming season. Uh, so they need to sell in the realm of around $50 million and Pastore probably only covered a small amount of that given, given how much they'll actually see. So Draxler is available. Pulisic, difficult. Kovacic, perhaps tenuous, but still definitely worth doing. Well, there's still also also the Leverkusen pair of uh, Julian Brandt and Leon Bailey. Uh, Brandt fits more into kind of that attacking midfielder role, and Bailey is much more of a, uh, a, a you know a pacey and size of attacking winger. Uh, I, I pref- of all these players, I actually um, I have a weird one about Pulisic, obviously being American, where I want him, but I also don't want him to come to Liverpool too quickly or to come to his side before he's ready to make that next jump because I don't want to see him, I don't want to see him ruined for the U.S. men's national team. And I certainly want to see, I wouldn't want to see a situation where he fails to pan out for both Liverpool and the U.S. men's national team because that would be my nightmare scenario. That's fair. But at the same time, I think the one manager who would understand that and not place too much responsibility on his shoulders. His class. Yeah, he's definitely Klopp, but also I think Dortmund may... They need to be careful that they don't overbear the shoulders of that kid because and while the Bundesliga is great for that and the Premier League isn't, Klopp is the master of nurturing those talents and bringing out the best in them. But um, we're going to switch gears for a moment now. Um, obviously, this week we've, we've, signed a, uh, we've signed a starting goalkeeper in Alison Becker. Um, I guess the only question really about Allison is not if he is obviously going to take the starting role because he was signed to do that, but I guess it's the question of will he be starting for us against West Ham on the 12th of August and how quickly he can join up with the squad and get himself into that role. But it's now around, you know, the keepers who are still here and who have just gone. So Danny Ward obviously has completed a move to Leicester this week and, uh, you know, I have nothing but positive things to say about his reign as the number one keeper at Liverpool. I guess the question is between Mignolet and Carrick. <laughs> the, be- short, the short, the short yeah. 
didn't allow a single goal. But between Mignolet and Karius, I guess the question is, uh, is it obvious that Mignolet is the one that goes? Um, Tadila, I guess, you know, what, what, what's your take on, on, the, on the keeper situation between, the two, between those two? Um, I think it obviously lends itself to a, logical, a pretty logical conclusion that Mignolet is the one that goes. But can you see anything differently happening? No, I, I think that one is pretty clear in my eyes. I think Mignolet, the thing for Mignolet is I don't think there's ever a chance of him getting near that number one spot for Liverpool in terms of he's just, I don't think, I, I just don't think he could ever win anyone over again. I think there's been too many bad days, unfortunately, for him. And obviously, I, I have nothing against the guy himself. This is just purely speaking on the pitch. I just don't think he suits a, a top-tier team in the sense that, you know, at Liverpool, he's not expected to make, you know, 20 saves a game. It's just that one or two saves that you need to have been concentrating for 60 minutes. Then you have to pull off a save just to, you know, either give us the point or make sure that we keep the lead. And he seems to struggle with that specific point. And whereas if you looked at his time at Sunderland, when he's when he had a lot of shots coming in at him, he's a he's a very good you know shot stopper. And I think there are keepers that just need to sort of like get their eye in, eye in a little bit. And I think you know I don't think he's a horrible keeper. I don't think he's a bad keeper. I just don't think he's a keeper that's of the standard of a Liverpool. And I'm sure you know even a mid-table team or if he was to go abroad, uh, we've seen links with Barcelona. Uh, they might be looking for a new backup keeper. I think he could he could do a job for someone, but I just don't see him being satisfied staying as you know the second choice or third choice keeper at Liverpool, and also where he would then try and sneak his way back in. Whereas with Carius, I think because of his age, there is still that you know he's still bracketed under the he's got potential to fulfil as a goalkeeper. Considering you know goalkeepers, they do reach their peaks. At a, at a, a much older age than other players. So even if you say 25 years old, if he was an outfield player, maybe you'll be looking at him starting to get into his peak years. Whereas for a goalkeeper, that's still very, very young. And I, I think either Liverpool, you know, hit the refresh button and they sell all, all of them in Ward, Mignolet and Carriers. And then either Grabara gets promoted or we bring in a backup. Or you keep a, a, a Carrius around, you know, he's going to be out of the limelight with Becker coming in. So that allows him maybe to work on the mental side of the game. He can play maybe the cup games, you know, sort of looking to rehab his mental side. I, I was okay with him being our number one heading into this season off the back of the, the last six months of last season. You know, obviously the Champions League final happened and there were concerns there, but he's not really, uh, you know, as horrible as people have, have made him out to be. I think it was more, it's an emotional thing having been in a final, but in terms of fitting crop system, he's able to play with his feet. He helps us start counter attacks. He's able to, you know, he makes good saves. I was okay with it, but obviously with Allison there, I mean, that just takes us to another level. Yeah, I guess. The uh the big pl- the big thing that we've been linked with is uh or anything is is Simon Mignolet actually going to uh, go to Barcelona? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, 
we could we could do a deal with them, or we just say, look, you know, you take you take two more million of your hand of our hands, and we'll take maybe four million off off of the money you owe us for Coutinho, and that's fine, and you can take it. He's causing us enough pain, uh, and and that that's I think that'll be fair. To be honest, I think that's a, that's a fair trade. Barber owes a lot of money, so it wouldn't surprise me if they just started throwing money at our rejects and started just going, okay, we need to pay off this Coutinho fee somehow. Okay, Simon Mignolet, come over here. That's 10 mil off the amount of money we owe to Coutinho. Who else you got? Oh, yeah, Dejan Lovren. Here we go. Come on. Come on down. Best defender in the world. Let's have a look here. Yep, lovely. Adam Alana, come on. You can play in Barcelona's majestic historical shirt as well. As long as we only... By the time they're, they're done, they'll probably only owe us another 4 million for Coutinho. Take <laughs> all of our rejects. It'll be great. And that's, I mean, it would certainly do a lot for our wage bill. But uh, you know, there, there's a few other players that are also rumored to be going out. Um, one actually confirmed, and I think that, I guess really the question with him, and it's a simple one, is is, is this it for him at Liverpool? Ryan Kent getting a club to, getting a loan to Rangers off of a disappointing loan in the Bundesliga. I guess the question is, if a player dropping that far down, and we all know the level of, Scot- of, of uh, the Scottish, you know, Scottish league, is this basically just a get some confidence before you get a permanent move elsewhere and good luck to you, Ryan? I think it's more, um, well, I think that's, I, yeah, I think that's it. But I think it's also more Steven Gerrard needs, uh, a strong core for his squad, needs quick players because they prosper in Scotland and Ryan Kent's worked with him. So he figured, look, the Scottish Premier League's probably your level. Um, we'll do you a favor. We'll give you the, give him, Give Rangers kind of that cherry. Kent's not that bad a player for kind of a championship side, but he's not not much more than that. Um, especially when you've got competition from Ojo and Wilson, or Ojo uh, and Wilson. I think both supersede him in terms of ability far, far away. Uh, but Ojo's an interesting one because we probably will need someone like him or Lazar Markovic. And I can't see Lazar Markovic being allowed back into the fray or re-entering the fray. It'd be the most colossal, magnificent turnaround if Klopp could coax something out of the 20 million wonder kid that Brendan so cruelly destroyed. But uh, it's almost impossible to see Markovic actually be the backup winger we need. Makes me think maybe Ojo isn't going to leave, but at the same time, you're sitting on a 10 to 15 million pound asset there. Um, we've spent a lot of money. We've been able to flog Danny Ward for 12 million, which is just incredible business. Something tells me Edward isn't done getting these high figures, especially that we've loaned Wilson now. Uh, that's either to increase his value for next season or because Klopp genuinely does see, you know, it's kind of a prospective future for him. Uh, and I don't think Ojo would do well to kind of, some, uh, it's difficult to say because if he sees his at these days here, he comes off the bench, maybe scores a couple of goals, maybe then a bottom-tier Premier League side does throw more than just $10 million at him, but at the same time, doesn't make appearances, he soon fades from memory, you get maybe $3 million from him. So uh, I, that's, a, that's a decision that Edwards and Klopp are going to have to look at. I think Swansea's definitely got interest in him. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Fulham are the ones who actually front up the money. He was excellent there last season under Slavisa Jokanovic. So... I mean, there's these deals like Danny Ward, 14 million. Um, Ryan Kent going out on loan. I'm sure Steven Gerrard will take him. 
if he performs well this season there, you can charge him another four or five million off Kent and you've made more money. It's these little smart signings, which that, that's how you know a club being run well when they can generate 30, 40 million off of dead wood. Um, and that's something, as you mentioned before, Justin, that clubs like Arsenal and Chelsea are struggling to kind of balance out. Now, Tadiba, I guess, you know, going, going out, I want to ask you something based off of, uh, Lazar Markovic, and he's on the plane to America. You know, he, they're, they're, he's gonna, he's probably gonna play a little bit on this tour. Um, but another prominent player who, you know, came off the bench for us late a bunch of times last season, and has had a, and has had a tough road at Liverpool because of the injuries. Danny Ings is not on the plane. What do you make of this? Is there actually still a possibility for a chance for Markovic to maybe salvage something? And is this also the indication that Danny Ings is is definitely on his way out? Yeah, I think definitely not being on the flight to the U.S. I think that definitely uh, writes Danny Ings off in terms of his Liverpool career. And I suppose it's a shame in that he hasn't really had a Liverpool career because he's been on the injury table for most of it. But I, I do think the team has moved on from needing a, a a Danny Ings in it and I think he he will do well you know I'm sure whichever team he goes to he is a natural goal scorer you know that that's where he he earns his money um I, I think I don't know if it's going to be I don't know which team he'll be going to but I, I do think not going on the tour sort of just writes itself there in terms of Markovic as, as you mentioned he he made it onto the flight so as long as you're, you're part of that team, there's always a chance. And we saw him against Blackburn. I thought he played well. Uh, he got a goal, so credit to him. Um, we've there's tried learning him out. There's a chance. Yeah. There's a chance. We, <laughs> we've tried learning him out a few times and that hasn't worked out. So, you know, he's running, you know, the, the, the last year of his contract, so to speak. So it could just be a matter of, Maybe he's figured out that it's do or die and he's trying to take the chance where he can. Um, look, I, I just hope that he, I, I mentioned it on the face off podcast. I, I do hope that he takes his chance on this US tour because it's a win win for Liverpool. If he plays well, either he plays well enough for Klopp to keep him or he plays well enough for another club to sign him because I think it's more indicative, I suppose, of both Ings and Markovic arguably, you know, entering this, this summer, we could have said both of them are players Liverpool were looking to sell. And Ings not going on the tour means he's been able to secure a club or there has been enough interest that he's going to be moving. Whereas Markovic, the fact that he's on the tour, it could be argued that it's because we're still trying to put him into the shop window. So I think it's, it's, it's more on Markovic to take that mental side of the game that it seems to be his, you know, his downfall. He's got raw talent. It's just not being cultivated yet and just do as much as he can on this tour, either to win a move somewhere else or stay and be part of the team coming off the bench. In terms of, in terms of Lazar, there's a couple of things giving me hope and maybe it's completely unfounded hope, but it's hope nevertheless. One, uh, the only game I ever saw at Anfield, or I've ever owned, the only game I've seen at Anfield up to this point, I'm still young and I'm still hopeful, um, is the Basel game in the Champions League where we drew 1-1. We needed to win to go through, and we didn't. And that was Brendan Rodgers' 10-year summed up in one game. 
Uh, and that game, Lazar Markic was superb. He was tremendous up until the point when he flicked a bit of air in front of defender's nose and the ref saw that as fit cause to send him off. Uh, and that is the kind of talent that you want from someone coming off the bench. Someone who's explosive, who's got the pace, but also who knows how to beat players in more than one fashion. What we don't want is to have a problem beating, trying to beat a defence and to look to the bench and there's only the players who will only encourage the problems we've already had. I.e. Lalana in kind of the Champions League final was kind of microscopically indicative of the problems we already had. I.e. if you take Lalana and what he does, it slows us down. And we already had problems with Madrid trying to slow us down. They didn't let us play through midfield. They tried to stop all the counterattacks we did. You bring Lalana on, especially Sulla, and all of a sudden your problems are magnified times, times 10. If you bring on someone like, say, Shakiri, long-range threat, interplay, explosive off the first 10, 15 yards, then you've got the different kind of threat. Say you're facing Palace and you need someone to be able to carve a chance out from outside the box or to be able to charge down the two players and play into Firmino, whatever. I think Markovic possesses that. And he has to show that in flashes. Okay, fair enough. He, he hasn't. There are other times where he's just simply not been good enough. The other hope is that Jurgen Klopp will never cast his mind to the absolute definitive stance on someone, unless that someone is a reckless or kind of pervasive influence on the camp. We saw that with Sacco. I was going to say that basically it's a Mamadou Sacco situation. Yeah. Well, Sacco was kind of disruptive, and that's, and like it, like it or not, like him or not, Klopp made a decision based on what was best for team unity. I don't think he's ever going to do a Mourinho and make a decision based on his own ego for whether or not he proves a player. And that's because I've seen him do it over his entire career. He, he assesses players. He says, show me what you can bring to me. And even if he doesn't think they can bring anything, he will let them prove him wrong. I mean, look at the, the, the players who's, who he's transformed. Lalana was just a wasteful kind of attacking midfielder who he turned into a number 10. Even Ox last season, he wanted to play in central midfield. Klopp said, fine, I'll play in central midfield, but you have to show me that you, you earned your spot there. Even the likes of, uh, going back loads, Mignolet, when kind of the debate was on, tried to become the keeper that would come and punch, that would play out from the back, and Klopp didn't let his clear kind of allegiance to the idea that Simon Mignolet isn't very good affect him, and then he kept giving him chances. Stephen Corker, who we signed on loan, was a defender, and Klopp said, all right, you're not very good at defending. Why don't you try playing up front? And we beat Norwich 5-4. And, and that was good enough. That was that justified the entire Stephen Corker signing. Klopp will give players chances to show him what they've got. Now, I'm not saying Lazar Marcus is going to do a Stephen Corker and become Liverpool's best striker. Uh, but then again, Marcus doesn't have to compete with Christian Benteke. Uh, and I'm not saying that Markovic is necessarily the answer to attacking midfield depth, but I am saying that it would be better for Markovic to be on this trip and to play him into form while we get 15 million for Shea Ojo than it would for Markovic to not be on this trip to leave on a free or get loaned out again for Ojo to go on a loan and all of a sudden we're looking at just Shakiri and an unfit Lalana. Uh, and, and kind of 
bare-bones stocks, which was our problem last season. So it's good. It's a good thing that Markovic is giving us hope. It's a good thing that we are here clutching at straws, trying to say, okay, come on, Lazar, show us you've got something. Because we've got a manager who will always give you another chance. Whether sometimes it's through his fault, but he always will. And hopefully that pays off. Yeah, so... Another player who has gone out pretty much on a consistent set of loans and hasn't played for Liverpool yet much. Um, Marco, Marco Grujic, who is rumored to be going to play on loan at Cardiff. Um, do we think this is a good move? I mean, I think I actually prefer this to the Harry Wilson loan, which I'm, I, I think that the Wilson loan actually kind of spells the end for Wilson as a Liverpool player because I just don't see what consistently going on loan to the championship is going to do for him. But at least Grujic should be getting a loan within the Premier League. Do you guys think that this is basically just put him in the shop window and eventually just sell him full-time to Cardiff move? Or do you think that this actually does say, like, you know, there is a chance for you here to uh, develop into something? Um, Tadiwa, I'm going to go to you first with that one. Yeah, I do think it helps that it will be a Premier League move. As you said, I, I agree with you with the Wilson one. I was hoping that he was going to maybe get a Premier League loan opposed to a championship one. And I think Gruwich... He's going back to a team where he's familiar with the city, he's familiar with the players. He was actually nominated to tour their play of the season. And he only played, you know, the, from January with them. So he had a very good season for them. He had a lot of impact and they loved him there. So I think that, that will just help him grow, you know, getting straight back into that system. In terms of his future at Liverpool, I think, I think he's one where, we're, we're happy to keep learning him out and maybe we'll improve his contract as the, the years go by and just sort of hold him there while we're still, you know, piecing together our midfield. You, you never know how much longer James Milner's got, although he, he's arguably one of the fittest guys in our team. But, you know, there are pieces in that midfield that could move and you can always bring back a, a Gruwich. In terms of, um, the one interesting thing for me is Gritch was always a Buvach signing. You know, Buvach was the one that identified him and convinced Klopp to bring him in. And I'm, I'm assuming that Buvach is, is gone from Liverpool. The club is still being quite silent on that. But, you know, where the thing that sold it for me was us bringing in Fabinho. I thought Fabinho was a Pep Linders type of signing. You know, of a proper, you know, deep line playmaker six opposed to the, the ignoring a six, so to speak, or, or shoehorning Jordan Henderson into that role. Like it seems like we've changed our style of play to fit more of a Pep Linder's coaching style. And I wonder if Gruzic will then be able to fit into that system or not. Yeah, that's a good point about the Buvac thing, but also I think a better point about Linder's. And the role of the six, he Linder was very, very adamant in an interview that he gave with Jonathan Norcroft um, that one of the most important pieces to his puzzle was Trent Alexander-Arnold as that deep midfielder. And by extension, he mentioned Ruben Neves, who was someone I, I wanted to put signed before the Fabinho deal came through. I wanted him desperately. Um, he is more of a playmaker than than Fabinho, but the idea that you need an anchor that you need a crux at the base of the midfield is very much a Linders thing. And judging from Klopp, especially his Liverpool tenure, it's not necessarily something Klopp was always that inclined to do. Um, but on Gruwich, I'd be happy to see the back of him if for no other reason than 
I am all in on Jordan Shakiri, and I am certainly willing to die on the hill that is Jordan Shakiri over Marco Gruic on the political scale. Uh, and, and that's something that I'm willing to say goodbye to Marco for. But at the same time, Klopp giving him a chance just hasn't come. Uh, last season when he was at the club, Klopp wasn't very much interested in developing him via game time, and yet at the same time he gave 17-year-old Trent Alexander-Arnold game time, 18-year-old Ben Woodburn game time. Um, I don't see a future for Gruwich, but I do see a future for youngsters under Klopp, so it's not going to necessarily be that much of a loss. This is this is where I'm just going to interject a disclaimer that the AI Extra Transfer Rumor Show takes no political position in the Kosovar <laughs> the, Co- the Kosovar uh, Muslim versus Serbian nationalist point. Am uh, I going to be sued? No, uh, no, no, I'm just, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm, so do you already know any good lawyers? Uh, I am a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, he is. Oh, what to is what? That's convenient. <laughs> But uh, but no, uh, I, I think uh, going into just a few other smaller pieces of business, obviously this is one that I think, and I'm just going to guess that none of us are going to be keen on it. But uh, Genie Wijnaldum has been rumored loosely to be wanting out. I think it's just from reports in Turkey that we're really seeing this. Um, I can't see any good reason for either player or club to end the relationship between Liverpool Football Club and Genie Wijnaldum. Uh, I, I think that he actually probably. Of any of the midfielders we actually have who will be fit and ready for the first day of the season should be the ones starting next to Fabinho and Keita. Yeah. I think it's almost locked in that Genie's going to stay, just to, even for the influence that he shows. Um, the Shakira interview, for one, that massive smile on his face, for two. I, I can't imagine Liverpool without it this season. So, no, I think it's just nonsense with Turkey, to be honest. How about you, Tadima? Yeah, I think... The thing for me with the Turkey links is that I don't know how many players, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but so many players of ours have been linked with Fenerbahce since Damien Kamoli came in. Yeah. I mean, there were Ings links, there were, I, I, it, it just keeps going. So I, I don't know how much weight I can, exactly, yeah. So I don't know how much weight I can play into that. Um, in terms of Genie, he's probably one of our most reliable midfielders, both in terms of fitness and in terms of he can play anywhere. In that midfield three, he's deputized a centre-back as well. So he's one of those utility players who, I keep mentioning Milner and his age, and I'm, I'm not, you know, dispelling his quality or anything like that. But if Milner was, you know, to eventually move on, Genie could definitely feel that role as the utility player, which he already kind of does. So I don't see, after a World Cup, there's likely to be a lot of niggles and injuries in the season, why you would be looking to solve arguably your most reliable midfielder in terms of always being available and being able to play any of the position. Especially the guy who didn't have to play in the World Cup. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I, it's, I actually think, if you think about it, Milner's on the last year of his deal. I don't see, I don't picture us signing James Milner to an extension um, of this deal because he'll be, what, 34 entering next season? I think this is it for him. This is the last year of Milner's contract at Liverpool. I can't see any real extension with a guarantee of playing time. Genie is, I think Genie does walk into that position as the long-term utility guy who can just do just about everything, uh, except for play striker or keeper. I think that's basically his long-term fi- uh, future with the club. And I'm, and I'm fine with it. Um, I, 
I genuinely think he offers a lot in, in that role. I just don't think he's, you know, a, a week in, week out starter at his, at his preferred position, which I could see eventually that would make a player maybe want to leave unless there's the possibility to win things. But also, then we've spoken about this a lot on AI and Klopp spoken about it in the media. We have only just now discovered the fruits of having a big squad. And if you sell someone like Genie, then all of a sudden the squad becomes smaller, especially with Emre's departure, Emre Chan leaving. Um, and on a small tangent, I don't think, I don't think the club should be kind of lampooned or begrudged for getting rid of a player who insisted on a release clause when the entire business structure that they're trying to put in place is you're either with us for the long run or we make a lot of money off you. By all accounts, selling Emre Chan for his release clause in a year's time would have copped the exact same kind of flack, but also probably the same financial loss because he's probably a 60 million value in a year's time as opposed to what the release clause he insisted on was, which is somewhere around 35 million euros. Uh, that's a 30 million euro decrease. We probably lost 30 million euros on his valuation now. It's fine. When uh, Michael, when Michael Edwards and his team are able to get 14 million or, sorry, 12 million pounds off of Danny Ward, who's made, what, four first-team appearances, and they're able to swap Kevin Stewart for Andy Robertson. We don't need to be making money off, off fringe players. We don't need to be selling these players to balance the books. Um, we don't need to lambast the club for, for losing Emre on a free, no matter how bad the business may look on face value. Gene should stay in the same... It's the same case for Origi. I think Origi should stay... Uh, because we've only just discovered the benefits and I've just started reaping the benefits of having a squad if you start kind of making a little bit of money off of these deals here and there uh, then you, all of a sudden you lose the big picture and I think we need that squad this season and you're right Milner's only got one year left in his contract and he won't re-sign unless they see a future um, in coaching for him which I know has been mentioned a couple of times and apparently very astute tactically but uh, I'm not sure that there's any kind of situation where we sell Genie, don't buy an attacking midfielder, and are somehow all right going out of that. I still think we need an attacking midfielder because we still haven't replaced Coutinho, but uh, Alden isn't that. He's he's the utility man, like you said, Justin. I think he's he's going to play as vital a role this season as he's played in any other. Yeah. So I think that about brings us to the end of this week's episode. But before. Uh... Before we go and before our plugs, we're going to go, we're going to go with a closing question. Uh, we were going to talk about Daniel Sturridge, but he'd been talked about a bit in this podcast. So we'll, we'll reference him once. Um, I'm going to give you guys a number, 10 and a half. This 10 and a half is the, it's an over, you're picking over or under 10 and a half direct goal involvements, be it goal or assist for Daniel Sturridge for Liverpool this season to Diwa. Over. Going I, think, I think. Yeah, I think he's. I'm, I've bought into Daniel Sturridge. I do it every summer. I don't care what anyone says. Logic <laughs> gets out the window. Daniel Sturridge is going to kill it next season, and he's going to score. I'm going to go over under 15. I think he's close. Right. And then Alex, the over under 10 and a half goal involvements for Liverpool for Daniel Sturridge as a Liverpool player. Uh, I'm going to say under. Today, what? You're fooling. You're breaking my There's heart. There's no logic. What are you doing? <laughs> I was mad. All the things you just said to yourself, I'll just repeat. No matter how much I want to buy into Sturridge returning, especially as a number 10, especially in that role, 
Because I think it's oh, it's perfect for him avoiding explosive sprints, avoiding putting pressure on his hamstrings, avoiding that those little turns he does that have ruined his legs. But I can't, I can't, I cannot take this leap of faith one more time. I've done it the last three seasons, and it constantly let me down. I'm sorry, Daniel. Prove me wrong. Stand outside my house in the rain and show me that I was wrong. I'm, I'm ready to get my. I'm ready to get my heart broken again. I'm ready. <laughs> Come on, Daniel Sturridge. You can do it, boy. Right, so yeah, I, re- I realize the hypocrisy of this as I say that Nabil Fakir deal isn't dead, but everyone's a hypocrite, so I might as well be. Yeah, so I'm with I'm with Tadiwa. Um, I'm, I'm going to just allow myself to surrender to the irrational, and I think Sturridge will top the 10 direct, you know, 10 and a half direct goal involvements this season. Uh, so that, that brings us to the end of this week's pod. Uh, we want to thank our guest, uh, Alex Barillaro. Alex, do you have anything you want to plug? I know, I know you've been, uh, coming out with a few pieces that are on the, uh, main AI site. So, uh, what should people read? Um, yeah, it's been uh, transforming those in full swing. Three weeks of it left. So I've been kind of in full effect looking at players, scouting players, making reasons why we should sign certain players because they might fit. Julian Draft is the latest one I've looked at. Um, I go in depth on why. Especially during his time at Wolfsburg, he showed why he'd be perfect for Klopp, uh, and why even though he did reject us once and choose to stay at Paris Saint-Germain, uh, or choose to go to Paris Saint-Germain as well the first time, uh, it would be worth going back in for the German because if Klopp can get his hands on that potential and turn him into kind of the superstar he once threatened to become, then he would be simply phenomenal. Um, I'm also looking at uh, a Neymar feature in the coming weeks that should be um, done soon. That won't be for AI, that'll be for some another another outlet. Uh, and that I'm really looking forward to writing that. It'll be a nice big feature piece. Uh, and then obviously, yeah, any other articles I write will go up on the main AI site. You know where to find me. Uh, at Alex underscore Barra twelve on Twitter. So yeah, that's that's me. Yeah. And to do do you have anything else you gotta uh, you want you want to uh plug other than this show um yeah well I'll, I'll i'll sneak in one for this show the the one we had on friday uh obviously celebrating the the arrival of alison becker so go check that out if you want some details you know more in depth on him as a player him coming in the implications that he has the pros and cons as well as yeah i say cons in inverted commas we did try and look at some you know contentious things you know maybe a few heart attacks he might cause with the craft turns that he likes to do. Um, in terms of podcasts, I've also got a face-off podcast that we actually recorded today as well, so check that one. That should be coming out soon. It's just going battle for battle, player versus player in certain positions in the squad. We went through the, the whole squad um, looking at some of the, the key battles that might be happening for players that are staying and players that might be leaving. Um, I th- I'm sure Alex will be pleased to know we went quite in depth on Lazar Markovic and, and, and <laughs> his potential for staying. Yeah. Um, in terms of Twitter, you can find me on Twitter at the Ace of Naves Seven. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, we'll be back next week with uh, another fun look at a rapidly closing transfer window.
Sports Social Podcast Network.